0: You're listening to The Pastor's Cut, a podcast from Park Community Church in Chicago. Every time a pastor prepares a sermon, there's material that influences, shapes, and informs, but gets cut from the final preach. That's why we started The Pastor's Cut, to give you a chance to go behind the scenes and access the content that informs the teaching at Park each week. If you're wanting to grow in your understanding of and fascination with the Bible, you've come to the right place. This is The Pastor's Cut. And we're your hosts, Sharon Brandis
1: And Trevor Lovell.
0: Welcome back to another episode of The Pastor's Cut. We are joined with our guest today, Rafe Chennery from our South Loop location. How are you?
2: Wonderful. Glad to be here.
0: Good. So Trevor and I know you, but for our listeners that do not yet know you and your family, can you share a snippet of who Rafe is?
2: Yeah. Uh, So I'm Rafe. Uh, I'm the pastor down at Park (laughs) South Loop. Uh, Let's see. I've been part of Park for uh, over 10 years now. Uh, And for the first four to five years, uh, I had a corporate job and I worked in the city. uh, Mm -hmm. And then about six years ago, was kind of called into pastoral ministry as I was wrapping up my seminary. Uh, Married to my beautiful wife, Sarah, and we got three kids. My oldest is five, little Ruthie. And then our two twins are three years old and uh, their names are Joy and Mira.
0: Awesome, Ruthie's yeah. a great big sister.
2: Yes, yes, and I, I like to joke that she's the the little mama. She, she's like her mom with her little ducks in tow around the house, and Aww. she kind of makes them do all the little chores she doesn't want to do, but shows them how to do it the right way. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and kind of teaches them and guides them. She's a good big sister. She is. She's wonderful. She
1: is. Yeah. And Rafe, your story of how how you came into ministry is kind of interesting because it wasn't like you came right out of high school, went to Bible college, seminary, and then it was—it was you were working a corporate job, just going to church, were just engaged, and then through that kind of felt the call into,
2: you know, full-time ministry. How did that come about? Oh well, that's a very long story, but to get- yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to, to give you the very quick version of it, yeah. um, you know, I think what happened is I started taking seminary courses uh, part time at night and for fun. Uh, it was with the thought that God might call me into ministry. Okay. I had been a missionary yeah. right out of college. And, and at, at the time, mm. I thought maybe full-time ministry would be what God would call me to. But mm-hmm. I was finding a lot of joy in my work yeah. uh, in corporate America. And um, as I was taking classes, God was just putting this burden on my heart. Like, I, it, it, it became this increasing thing with every class I took in seminary. I'd come home to my wife and be like, I don't know what this looks like, but I have to tell someone about what mm. I'm learning. I have to teach this. Yeah. And it got to the place where it was really hard to just contain it. And along that same time, there's a kind of a couple cool stories in there, but right around that same time that I was kind of beginning to feel maybe there's a transition happening in my life, even though I'm loving what I'm doing in corporate America. And I frankly, I thought I'd be here for a lot longer, mm-hmm. um, right about that time park, uh, kind of called me into the ministry as well. And so there was this alignment of what I felt God was doing in my own heart. And yeah. then my church was kind of calling me into the pastoral work. And uh, as my wife says, the stars kind of aligned. It took us about six months to kind of really <laughs> process that and think through what that meant for our family. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But God in his kindness uh, has brought us here and we I wouldn't look back. This has just been a sweet journey. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's great. So you preached this message at the South Loop location this past Sunday. Yes. Can you give us just a quick recap of the sermon?
2: Yeah. So this week we're, you know, we continued through the book of Exodus, and we got to Exodus chapters 19 and 20, um, which are the classic, the kind of famous passage where God gives the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. Uh, And I kind of had two, kind of two big goals with this sermon. Uh, The first one is I think sometimes especially when we come to passages that are really familiar for a lot of people that have some kind of familiarity with the Bible, but frankly, with the 10 commandments, even people who don't have familiarity with the Bible have heard of the 10 commandments. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just a lot of familiarity. And I think sometimes there can be a, a dullness that can kind of are, are non-excitement about it. And so one of my hopes with the message was to fuel, a an excitement and a profound kind of sense of majesty and awe and mm-hmm. the graciousness of God in these 10 Commandments, which is kind of a traditional passage that we maybe have heard many times before and forgotten the power of it all. So one was to kind of incite majesty in people. Yeah. Uh, but two, the real big idea of the sermon was kind of wrestling with what do we do with these Old Testament laws? And uh, what I kind of said is pulling from some New Testament Um, language that's used in Hebrews and in Colossians. The 10 Commandments, in a sense, are shadows. Uh, They're good and they're these amazing laws that God gave, but ultimately, the shadows were always intended to point us towards the substance, which is Christ himself. So in the Old Testament, they had this shadow that they lived underneath and they had to obey these 10 Commandments and it was to guide their life. And they were good laws, they're wonderful laws. Even today, I think Christians should still be living by these 10 Commandments, they're good moral laws. But ultimately, the shadow always points us towards the substance, the fullness, the reality of what the shadow is pointing towards, Jesus. And so, if we wanna know what the heart behind any of the Ten Commandments is, we've gotta to go to Jesus and see his life, see what he taught, see how he explained those Ten Commandments, and then we begin to get to the heart of what it's really all about. And so, just to kinda of give you one quick example, if you take, you know, one of the Ten Commandments is don't commit adultery, that's a wonderful law, Christians should still be living by that law today. Uh And yet Jesus shows us that while that was a great shadow of a law, it always pointed towards the fullness, which we find in Christ. And in Christ's Mm -hmm. teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, he explains that law. And he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your eye, you've already committed adultery. Mm -hmm. And so here the shadow is finding its substance. And so as New Testament Christians, Yes, do we need to live underneath that shadow? Great law, yes, wonderful. And yet, we find the substance in Christ. It's a much higher law, the law of Christ. And Mm -hmm. so we look to Christ for how we ought to live our life and how we ought to understand the practical ways of living out the Ten Commandments.
0: Yeah. I feel like I could ask a million questions off of that. But we're here to find out what was cut from your sermon. So what's the first piece of information that got cut from your preach?
2: All right, so both my kind of two points we'll talk about today are things that I referenced in my sermon but frankly just didn't have enough time to really dig into the level I would have liked to. The first is trying to understand the fullness of the Old Testament law and I'll be careful here because next Sunday uh, we're going to be opening up and talking more about the law because there's many more laws in the Old Testament besides just the Ten Commandments Uh, and so I don't want to dig too deep into what happens next week. But The Ten Commandments and all of God's law have posed a theological point of discussion for Christians uh, throughout the history of the Christian church. We tried to wrestle through, okay, here are these laws that were given to God's people under the Sinai covenant, under the Old Testament, they were to govern God's people. But now that Christ has come, what do we do with those Old Testament laws, the fullness of them? And when we look at those Old Testament laws, you know, some of them are pretty interesting, right? You know, you've got laws like don't eat shellfish and laws about you know, how much or what certain fines should be if you, you harm your neighbor in certain ways that were very specific to God's people living in Israel at the time. Mm-hmm. And then you also have these wonderful laws like the 10 commandments, which seem very practical to our life today. And so if you take the fullness of all the hundreds of laws that are in the Old Testament, what do we do with them? How do we submit to them? And do we submit to them or are Mm -hmm. we free from them? That's been the point of discussion. And historically, the way that uh, many, you know, Christian churches have understood what we ought to do with the Old Testament law is to break them into three categories. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ceremonial laws, civil laws, and moral Mm -hmm. laws. Now, this is a tough distinction to make because frankly, in the Old Testament, that's not how they're broken up. It kind of feels like when you reference the law, you're referring to all of them. Yeah. Yeah. But then when you really get to the nitty gritty of it, some laws are really about ceremonial law and the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Yeah. And so, you know, you look at laws, like for example, in uh, Leviticus chapter one, where he starts giving the people of God laws on how they ought to make a burnt offering to the Lord, part of the sacrificial system. And as New Testament Christians, we know, okay, wait, the, the sacrificial system has been fulfilled. Jesus is the fulfiller of the law. There's no more sacrifices to be made because they all pointed to the final sacrifice, to the substance, Jesus. And so, those shadows are fulfilled now in Christ and we don't need to keep making sacrifices over and over again. Mm -hmm. Frankly, if we were to do that, we would be rejecting the one final sacrifice that's already been made. And so, we look at those ceremonial laws and we say, okay, those are fulfilled in Christ. We live under that and by submitting to Jesus, that's how we fulfill those laws. Mm -hmm. Then you've got civil laws. Civil laws are these laws about how God's people should live in relation to each other as a people of God, as a nation of God. And, you know, these are laws like, uh, you know, uh, for example, in Deuteronomy 22, it says, when you build a house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. That's a fence around your roof Mm -hmm. uh, that you might not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Right? So (laughs) great law. Uh, Now, here's the thing. Frankly, the heart of that law is really good. Uh, In the Old Testament, they didn't have air conditioning, and so Mm -hmm. they'd sleep on their roofs most of the time. Hmm. And if you sleep on the roof, and you have a neighbor or a friend over, and they fall off the roof and die because you failed to put a fence around it so no one would fall off. It's your insurance, right? (laughs) That's your fault. You're going to held guilty for that because you were negligent. Uh, And yet, you know, times have changed. Those were civil laws. And the trick with that is, in the Old Testament, the nation and the church, so to speak, were one and the same. The nation of Israel was called to be this nation where God was the king, and all the laws that applied to the land were God's laws for his people. They were one and the same. And yet in Jesus' day, we know that that's, that's not the law we live underneath anymore. We don't expect the nation and the church to be merged into one. In fact, we, we don't like that. We would say that's not a good thing. Um, even Jesus, right? He says, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And he mm-hmm. we see that, the kingdom of God expands over many nations, cultures, tribes, etc. And so when it comes to civil laws, we also see those fulfilled in Christ. We see this great um, new kingdom that Jesus is building where the ethic transcends any national laws that might take place. Great heart behind those civil laws and we should understand them and yet not necessarily directly applicable in the ways they might've been in an Old Testament nation state of Israel. That leaves the moral law. Mm -hmm. So if we're saying the civil law, the ceremonial law are fulfilled, Uh we don't have to necessarily submit to them anymore. What about the moral law, Mm -hmm. the Ten Commandments? And that's where I spent most of the time this week saying the moral law has not changed in any way. I really believe that those are shadows, just like the other ones were, that find their fulfillment in Jesus still very good laws, we should be submitting to them, and yet we know that Christ has kind of given a fuller understanding of what all those were. Mm-hmm. And the case study of this is really um, the the big challenging of the challenge of the Ten Commandments is the Sabbath.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So that one, for example, over history, Christians have wrestled with, should we be keeping a Sabbath? Uh, one day of rest a week. Should we be six-day workers or seven-day workers, mm-hmm. <laughs> so to <Yeah>. speak? <laughs> and... Uh, and, and some people say, hey, look, no, all the law has been fulfilled. The fullness of the Sabbath is found in Christ, and you're free from that law. We now have the fuller, more beautiful rest that Hebrews talks about that is found in Jesus alone. And that's true. We do. That is a wonderful, true thing. Jesus gives a greater, fuller rest than simply the Sabbath law. Yeah. And yet, I would hold, and many traditional Christian churches would hold, to the understanding that the shadow of the moral law is not done away with. We still submit to those laws, but we understand they're reflecting off the fullness of what Jesus has accomplished for us and the fullness of who he is. Mm -hmm. And so I think the moral laws are still in uh, a huge part of a Christian's life today, and yet we don't end there. We always look up to the substance, which is Jesus, Mm -hmm. and we see the shadow and light of what he said and spoke and lived his life.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a quick summary of the first point. And, and, And frankly, just the... Uh, the challenge that the question of what do you do with the Old Testament law has posed to many thinkers throughout the history of the church.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's not always an easy question, but that, that breakdown is helpful, civil, ceremonial, immoral laws. And yeah, in Sabbath practice, right, the, the, there is a more full rest that we get as followers of Christ. Uh, what's interesting is the practice of a Sabbath, if you actually institute that, if you put that into your rhythms, right, that you keep this one day a week, that's just for rest, uh, and kind of intentionally spending that time uh, thinking about the rest that Jesus gives us and enjoying that. That that's mm-hmm. a there's a richness that comes with that, and it can be easy, especially in Chicago, a place you know so driven by career, mm. to just always be working, always be squeezing in work. But mm-hmm. taking that rest is a way that we glorify God. Yeah, yeah, and it's for our good. Yeah,
2: yeah. You know, it's a good question to ask yourself. If and this is why, I, frankly, I sometimes think. I think it's a good defense of why we should be applying the Ten Commandments uh, in their fullness. You take the Sabbath, if this is God's moral law for us, are we willing to sacrifice the next promotion to honor God's moral code for our life? Mm. Wow. Because there's someone else who's going to work seven days. Yeah. Yeah. And if you are worshiping money, like the rich young ruler (laughs) who Mm -hmm. also got in this debate with Jesus about the Ten Commandments, or if you have this you know, I, I value my career and my promotions more than God's morality for my life. Yeah. Well, then you're just constantly in competition. And the question is, are you willing to give up mm-hmm. to sacrifice a promotion <laughs> Yeah. with your seven-day working coworker for the sake of honoring God as holy and trusting that he is good enough for you and the rest he offers you is better than the rest you think you might get if you were to get that next promotion? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a good case study for each of our lives. So what else do you have? Uh, So that's kind of a wrap up of the first point. This kind of, you know, uh, three-way breakup of the law. Again, it's not necessarily uh, those words, ceremonial, civil, and moral aren't necessarily right out of scripture, but helpful Mm -hmm. to think through it. The second one is another (laughs) uh, three-way to break out how we understand the purpose of the law. And this has all these theological kind of rabbit trails you can go down. <laughs> so we've always wrestled with what was the purpose of the law in the first place? Like, why did, God, why did God give these laws to the nation of Israel in the first place? And in history, we've kind of given three big reasons. And these are just really easy ways to remember the purpose of the law. Number one, uh, reason number one is they serve as a guide. They serve as a guide. So that's pretty straightforward. When God reveals his law, his code of morality for his people, Mm -hmm. it shows us where to go, how to live, how ought we to live, how ought we to think about what is right and wrong, how ought we to think about society and how we ought to be living as a society. And so it serves as a guide. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second one is that it serves as a curb. And what I mean by that is uh, it serves as a restraint upon the wicked intentions we might actually live out if we didn't know god's desires for our life Mm -hmm. meaning you know the christian church holds to this doctrine of total depravity it's this idea that the the human heart if left to itself without any of god's common grace kind of sustaining us and bringing in love and, and elements of god that extend god's common grace to all cultures everywhere Mm-hmm. If, if that were to be removed and we were just to live in the fullness of what it means to be fallen, heirs of sin, because of what Adam did in the garden, if we were to be left all on our own, every thought and intention of the heart would be wicked and evil all the time, just as in the days before Noah. It was a very hellish society back then. Mm-hmm. And the idea of God's law is not only do we have this common grace that doesn't let us fall into that depraved of a situation, a society, But we also have God's revealed will for our life that curbs the wicked thoughts that we think about sometimes. So when an evil thought or intention comes into mind, I can run that through God's law, run that through uh, his code of morality and say, okay, I'm not gonna do that thing I thought of doing because I see that that's not honoring to God. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it stops us from doing all evil because we're all sinners and we fail all the time but in some ways it serves as a curb, restraining some of the evil we may have thought about Mm -hmm. doing. And in that sense, it lifts up all society. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Real quick, for our listeners that haven't heard of what common grace is, can you define that in a short little sentence? Yeah,
2: that's a great question. I am wrapping up the longest book I've ever read in my entire (laughs) life. (laughs) Is
0: it all on common grace?
2: The title is Common Grace. Oh, geez. Uh, this is a big, thick book by a great theologian named Abraham Kuyper. Um, it's been fascinating. And the idea of common grace um, its way too complex to summarize quickly, but the quick version is kind of what I just said. Uh, the human heart is fully depraved. This is where we need to sit and wrestle with the doctrine of sin. And when we forget this doctrine of sin, we begin to think way too highly of ourselves. The, the, the biblical worldview is that we are fallen and sinful and the only thing we bring to our salvation is our sin. We don't bring any goodness, we don't bring any, you know, salvific mm-hmm. uh, uh, virtues on our own. Mm-hmm. The only thing we bring is our sin and everything's been corrupted. Our mind has been corrupted, our heart's been corrupted, our will has been corrupted. And yet the reality is, is that when we look out around the world, I've been loved very well by Muslim friends. I've been loved very well by non-Christians throughout my whole life. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we look out at cultures around the world and we see elements of the Imago Dei, the image of God, being lived out in many different ways to different degrees from culture to culture and from religion to religion. Yeah. And what we would say is that's what's called common grace. God in his kindness has not allowed the depravity of our mind, heart, and will to bring all of society and the globe into the fullness of what could happen if we were left our own, but rather, all people get this common grace mm-hmm. that sustains them and brings in elements of the love of God into family. This is why we see the love of a mother to a child across yeah. all cultures. Yeah, That's not because we naturally do that. We're sinful fallen people. It's because God's common grace is sustaining us and he maintains elements of the Imago Dei across all people everywhere, yeah. in varying degrees yep. and yeah. in different ways, and yet, It's his common grace sustaining us. Helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Little theological rabbit trail there, but good one to think through. And the third one, so it serves as a guide. It serves as a curb. And then the third one, and this is really what's really important. It serves as a mirror. Um, I heard one pastor say it serves as an MRI machine. And what this means is that the law stands as an accusatory finger pointing at us accusing us and revealing what is really wrong with us so in a sense like an mri machine when you pass your life underneath that mri machine it diagnoses the problem for you and it shows you that you are sinful because nobody lives up to the ten commandments Mm -hmm. and if we don't even live up to the shadow of the law yeah when the substance (laughs) has come and we see jesus and we compare ourselves to him which is what the standard will be over our life on our judgment day we fall very short. And so it serves as a mirror reflecting our problem, but then also shows us a solution. The solution is Jesus himself who gave himself for us on the cross, shedding his blood that we might have forgiveness of sin and then fueling us for a life of increasing Mm -hmm. Mm Christ-likeness. And so it serves as this mirror reflecting the problem, but then also the solution, Christ. And only through him can we begin even to really understand the heart of the law in the first place. Mm
0: -hmm. You talked about uh, the depravity of our hearts and um, what that looks like in Noah's time. And I even think of, uh, I did an in-depth study on the book of Jonah and the Ninevites and how depraved they, I mean, yeah. they played soccer with heads and yeah. crazy things that yeah. we couldn't even stomach today. Yeah, um, But I think as society has uh, changed in the last few years, This moral law, um, the shadow of it was, you know, murder's bad. It's not good. Mm -hmm. Um, Stealing, not good. Uh, But society's starting to be more fluid. It's starting to be more gray, not so much black and white. And I can only imagine what that looks like for how the gospel um, can come into someone's life. I know here on staff we've talked a lot about how do we share the gospel with people and it's changed compared to how it was in the 90s and early 2000s mm-hmm. and um but i wonder what what people's hearts feel in this gray zone because mm-hmm. how many times have i heard or trevor have you heard that yeah. um you know someone may say oh i don't believe in that but if that's your truth then Right. You live into that. You live mm-hmm. into who you are, what you believe, and it's this uh, dismissive. Well, you do you. Yeah. I'm going to do me. I respect your beliefs, you know. Yeah. And so, um,
2: yeah. So, I think if I if I'm understanding your question correctly, and that is, uh,
0: I think it was just a point of debate. Sta- I don't yeah. think I gave you a question. Yeah. So
2: <laughs> it's a statement that begs yeah. a follow up. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think there's two components to that, what you just said. Mm -hmm. So I actually, I shared in my sermon this fascinating story. I was sharing the gospel last week um, out in Chicago and came across this young man who self-identified as a postmodernist, which Hmm. is just, (laughs) he almost like assumed it as a religion, like a title, which Uh I've never heard anyone do that before. Uh, But what postmodernism says is there is no truth. All truth is relative. You know, your truth is your truth. Let me be because my truth is my truth. Your morality is your morality. Let me be because my morality is my morality. And the reality is that's a failed worldview. It just mm-hmm. it doesn't stand up to the world that we live in. Um, yeah, I pushed on him, and I shared my sermon a little bit more on this. But I pushed on him. I said, "Then what do you say to the Nazis, who they all got together and, as a society, agreed it was good and just to break the Ten Commandments and kill and murder people who were not uh, had done nothing wrong simply because right. of their ethnicity?" And he, as a faithful postmodernist, looked at me and said. Yeah, that was good and just because they thought it was good and just. And who am I to tell them it wasn't? And I shared immediately. I said, you know, it's a very dangerous place for us to be in a society is we're beginning to call what is truly evil good. Mm -hmm. That's like the full reversal of God's design for how we ought to live. And I got to share the gospel with them. So there's that component where if we really hold to a worldview where your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, society falls apart and we don't practically live that way. We all agree that there are some universal laws that say killing is bad unless you're so stubborn hearted that you can't see the, the the frailty of the postmodern philosophy of life. But I think an even more dangerous perspective and what I see more often today is a moving a movement beyond postmodernism which says your truth is your truth, my truth my truth is... Into this space which I don't even have a title for it but just this idea that people don't care at all. That there's, they're not even interested in the conversation. Um, and I see this particularly among the youngest generation coming up. Um, the more conversations I have with them, there seems to be a not caring about morality at all. It's not even my truth is my truth. It's that the conversation means nothing to me. And I think that's just a very dangerous place to be in uh, because frankly, morality does matter. If we don't have a justifiable place to root ourselves on how we treat each other and why we're here and how we ought to live in a society, frankly, you know, we return to a place in the Bible, which was the book of Judges, where there was no king in Israel and everyone did what they wanted. And that's called anarchy. And that's a very dangerous place to be. And I kind of see that in the worldview of a lot of people today where they just don't care about morality at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't think it's a relevant conversation. And so, but the beauty of that is I think that creates this incredible space for the church to step in and be this bold, courageous witness for Jesus that says, nope, you know what? The, that worldview is going to fall apart very quickly. Mm-hmm. Jesus's worldview is going to maintain and sustain for all eternity. Let's live in accordance with his law. Yeah. Let's show yeah. off the beauty, the power, the glory, the majesty of living as people who have truly been purchased by the blood of the cross and we're living underneath his law and becoming more like Christ. That will maintain, and that will be an incredible testimony to a world that is kind of uh, wondering, is there anything meaningful? Yes. Uh Living underneath Christ's authority is meaningful and powerful.
0: Yeah. How do we practically do that? How do we as believers practically do that to these people that just don't even care for moral code?
2: Well we could come full circle and say, follow the Ten Commandments. I think that's actually really a really meaningful place. So, you know, if Christians want to know, how do I honor the Lord my God is holy? Jesus says this, the greatest, you know, uh, this rich young ruler, or no, a lawyer, a religious lawyer came up to Jesus and said, what are the greatest commandments? He said, quoting from Leviticus, honor the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. I love that. Use your mind to think rightly about God. Mm -hmm. And then two, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. He's quoting from Leviticus. He's summing up the law and the prophets. Well, how do you honor the Lord your God? Well, you do that, number one, have no other gods before me. Don't worship false gods. Don't worship your job. Don't worship money. Don't worship your spouse. Don't worship kid. Worship God. He's the only one. Yep. Don't make God into an image. In other words, don't make, don't choose the things of God you're going to worship and the things of God you kind of leave off. Take God on his terms. Take a Sabbath rest. That's a yep. great way to honor the God. How do you love your neighbor? Well, good starting place. Don't kill him. <laughs> that's a great, you know, that's a great law. Yeah. Don't steal from him. <laughs> Don't commit adultery, don't covet. And if you do those things, but then the fullness of it, if you get to the heart of it and see Jesus and what he says about those 10 commandments and begin living by the heart, not just the letter of the law, well, that's really what the church is. And then you start shining really brightly because frankly, Deuteronomy says that when the nations look in and see the nation of Israel living by these commandments, they will scratch their head in awe and say, what kind of God is this that governs a people with such beautiful laws as these? Mm -hmm. And if that was how they lived under the shadows, those laws, how much more will the nations look in on the church who are living by the law of Christ, the fullness, the substance of the law, and say, what kind of God is this that governs Mm -hmm. a people with such incredible standards for their life? And so I think, once again, it's just such a great opportunity um, that we have today to live bold, courageous lives for Christ.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. amen that's a good good word well thank you rafe for joining us this week
1: yeah thanks for having me and uh do just want to say really quickly uh sharon congratulations on your engagement we're all very happy for you thank you you. congratulations sharon
0: shout out to my fiance matthew (laughs)
1: uh-huh yes 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 congrats to you as well matthew and rafe great having you with us thank you
2: guys so much fun to be here
0: Thank you for tuning in this week. As a reminder, we are trying this out for the summer. So if you like what you're listening to, we want to know. Leave us a review, rate us five stars so that we can know if you want us to continue on in the fall. And then be sure to tune in next week as we hear from our guest from Bridgeport, Noah Chung. We'll see you then.